Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. All right, welcome to the B&E Podcast for a not-so-serious Sunday. And we, Evan... Brandon. We have a guest. I know. Scott Smith. Hello. He is a, <laughs> uh, he is a, a screenwriter who is on to his uh, second official script. And um, yeah, man, we're really excited to have you on board. Uh, you know, um, just uh, your writing process has been, has been awesome. Your scripts are turning out just amazing. And, uh, and you're, on a, you're on a terror right now, just powering through scripts. So Indeed. talk about that. Actually, Scott and I originally met in acting school way back, like over a decade ago. And uh, yeah, and then we reconnected recently. And, and actually, Evan was the one who invited him onto the show because you guys were connecting at the last uh, movie maker party yeah. we had. Yeah. yeah, we were having a good chat, and I thought, this is a guy <laughs> we should have on the show <laughs> and have a chat with because I think you've got some interesting uh, insights. You've got like the kind of moxie that we, uh, we talk a lot about on this show. True. Tremendous use of yeah. moxie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, why don't we start with, uh, so tell us about the first script you wrote and the one you're on to, and then, uh, and yeah, a little bit about, about your screenwriting process. Well, uh, I got to a point in my life where I had been searching for that creative outlet. I knew I wanted to be involved with movies, but I didn't know in what capacity. And I just got to that point where I started writing and I found that it energized me, filled me with a hole or filled a hole that um, nothing else could really fill, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I reached out to you and I got started in the process and um, my first, my first screenplay was a sci-fi screenplay. It was about a, it was about a guy, just a regular guy set uh, 300 years in the future and he was, uh, he, there was a big corporation that, um, they started, they're called biotech or biorhythmic technologies. And they started as like medical limbs and replacement parts and things like that. And they kind of grew through the centuries into this, um, I guess sort of Android maker. And, um, so he's kind of a designer and he, he helped build the cores for these new generations of, of androids and, um, sort of, he is confronted by one that uh, had the same core that he developed and it unleashed a big secret and they had to kind of race against time to get the information out and, uh, and it was a good experience because I didn't think I would ever really write a sci-fi screenplay at the time. I was kind of creatively closed-minded, if you will. And it just, I just didn't know. I thought, you know, write a cop movie or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something. Yeah, right, that's right. You were going to write a cop movie. And, uh, and you know, it was, it was interesting because when I took the concept course, um, it was a nice introduction into sort of what's expected of producers and professional, from professional screenwriters. And, um, and it was nice. I, I kind of, it was a struggle, but it was a fun struggle. And then I did Timeless and uh, decided to write the screenplay for it, which, um, which was a total blast for me. And, and it was, I think I learned so much just because it's not it wasn't a forte of mine. I really never saw myself as a sci-fi writer. 
but I had a blast with it, and, you know, it's like, how much can you know about yourself if you don't write genres that you're uncomfortable with? Right. So, um, now I'm on to a heist movie, if you will. It's about a, it's about a driver. Um, <laughs> he, he essentially worked his way up in a, in a car, in an unnamed car company, and mm-hmm. he started as a lot guy, and he worked his way up, and um, now you know those commercials where you see, um, it says, uh, closed course professional driver, and it's advertising the cars? Yeah. That's what he does. So not only does he film the commercials, but he, he tests the new technology. So if they have a new model that comes out, or say they change the suspension, he takes it out on the track, and he gives them feedback. And, and uh, yeah, essentially his mom is going to get it. He's super tight with his mom. She's going to get an illness and um, he's going to need money to pay for this. So he's at a high school reunion and um, he kind of befriends a guy who he knew from school and they hadn't seen each other in a long time. And turns out he's in a crew and they need a wheelman and the rest kind of goes from there. And... Um, the third one I'm going to be writing, the next one, is going to be a boxing movie. I don't know what kind, but uh, I've always wanted to write a boxing movie, so we'll see where that goes. But i got to tell you, the, the difference between the first and the second screenplay is night and day. Mm. And it jazzes me because I'm learning so much, and it's just the next one. And what really stokes me is, what's it going to be like when I'm writing my tenth? Right. How much more will I know? You know? How much better will my writing be? Um, but I, I do, I do recognize a little bit of what's working for me, my process. And I know that when I'm doing my process, it's kind of, it's kind of like I, I understand a little better what's good and what's not. I trust my gut more than I did before. So I'm finding that it's, I'm I'm already controlling the pace better. I'm telling the story I want to tell, as opposed to just trying to get a story out, just so I'm used to it. And um, the, the the creator aspect of it, the just being able to shape it as you see fit, is is really great. But also, kind of not getting too obsessed with editing it while you're doing it. Just mm-hmm. eat. sometimes I can only sit for an hour, and then I need a break. But in that hour, I just kind of try and give myself up to it as much as I can. Yeah. And I used to, on the first screenplay, I would, I would just literally count the pages as they went by, and it was like, oh, I'm one page closer to getting this completed, because that's, I really wanted that feeling, right? That's so awesome, yeah. <laughs> I really wanted that feeling of like, oh, I have completed a screenplay, I'm one of the chosen, you know? <laughs> I've done this, yeah. and stuck through it right to the end. And now it's like, sometimes I just forget, and I go back, and I'm like, oh, crap, that was five pages yeah. in like half an hour, you know? So, um, throughout the week, you know, I did have my sister in town. I haven't seen, she has a five-year-old that I haven't even met. She lives in Alberta. They just got married. So I spent a lot of time with them. Um, but I did my writing at night when I could. And, um, you know, I did my, my skeleton outline and then I wrote each scene out in sort of a paragraph form and I got that done. And then I, I started writing on, uh, on Thursday at about noonish. That's Sunday today. That's Sunday. And, um... You know, in about two days, I got about 25 pages out, and I know I could have got more. See? I know it. Well, that's the thing, right, is, is uh, I mean, regardless of what you could have done, the fact that you have all this stuff going on, you put out 25 pages in just a matter of days, I mean, that, 
that being that prolific as a writer, I think that's such a good message for screenwriters to hear because you're just on your second script and you're writing 25 pages in a matter of a few days. And, and, and I think that the screenwriting process, and I say this all the time, is that, you know, you could write the whole script in a week, clearly. You know, you could probably write in a yeah. few days. Your next one, yeah. you probably will. But what people don't realize is a lot of it is just figure it out, figure out the concept, figure out the setup, which you clearly were doing, and then you sit down and boom, you power out a bunch of pages. I mean, the screenplay is actually so easy. But I think what happens is people don't do that preliminary work. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Because you do a lot of the preliminary work. You're, I, you're, you're big on that. I struggled with it at first because the first time you're doing a screenplay, at least from my point of view, when you're doing your first one, you haven't yet gotten through and found your tools yet. So you're judging yourself. You're worried. You're thinking about the future. You're doing anything but being present. So now when I'm doing it, it's I'm in the moment. Um, I find that the process... The process just unfolds because of the work that I had done setting it up. And it, I think after you've written one and you get on to your next or your next or your next, you get a little bit more confident and you trust, you trust what, your, what your structure is. So if I have each of my, well, this, this movie has about 65 scenes in it, I could just go to the scene and write it out. And I couldn't do that the first time. It took me a few weeks to get to trust myself because I was editing as I was writing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I was spending whole nights on one page. And I, after a while, it gets frustrating. So once you really trust yourself and you've put the work in, because to use your vernacular, hang in the pocket. Hang out in the pocket and, and don't, I know you want to write. I know you want to move on to it, but don't do it yet. You'll know when you're ready. And then when everything falls into place, you kind of write it out. And then when it comes time to the screenplay, you just trust it. You just there. You just follow that. Follow what you've done. Follow the work that you've put in place. And it's it's you know when I when I and I had fun doing all of the the structuring. I, I was geeking out about it. Right. I was, I was having <laughs> such a blast. I was like, man, this is coming easier, and everything's feeling like it's falling into place, and the universe is lining up, and blah blah blah. And then I got to my screenplay, and I wrote fade in. And I just, I was like, ee! I just filled with so much joy. I like jumped around my room like Rocky because I was ready to write. I'm so stoked to write, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it, yeah, it's a blast. That's, That's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure you have lots of questions, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really great to hear, to hear your process through it because so rarely do we get to hear a screenwriter when they're in the beginning of their process. I mean, when I talk about it, you know, I've been doing it for a decade. So you know, when people hear me, it's like, yeah, but you've done it for so long, you know, but for you, you literally just picked this up and you're so prolific already. And I read, uh, I actually read the first, uh, four or five pages of this new, newest script. And I have to say it was seamless. Like it was, it was, and I was, I'm excited to see where it goes. But what's exciting is that for me is to see that the principles of screenwriting doesn't matter where you are. If you listen to those principles, which I, I talk a lot about on the podcast, yeah, that's what's important. And, it, and actually it inspires me because it makes me remember like, you know, cause I think what happens is you get a little more experienced and, and you've written quite a few scripts yourself, Evan, you get a little more experienced. You forget about where you started from. And it's nice to, you know, and the thing is, is you're not making excuses. You know, I found you to be someone who just wants to keep writing. You keep going. You're not thinking one script. You're thinking three scripts. And then now that you're thinking three, you're thinking 10. And I think that 
if you want to be a professional screener, that's how you need to think. You don't, if you're thinking one script, I'm going to make one script, I'm going to make it. I think you have, I think you're limiting yourself. It's like 10 scripts. I mean, you don't have to write 10 scripts, but three scripts puts you in the game. You have a body of work now. You well, know? I'm writing 10 scripts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and well, that's, and that's the way you got to think. I, I, I feel. No. And, and I think, I mean, a, a while ago, I mean, even though he ended up still making the movie I and mean, Quentin Tarantino, you know, hateful eight got leaked when he finished that script. And he was so upset that his script got leaked that he was like, I'm not making it right. Like he just says, no, I'm, 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 not going to do it. And people are like, what, you know, like you're Quentin Tarantino, like don't deprive us of, of <laughs> your yeah. work. Right. Yeah. And his response was like, I've, I've got, I've got like a dozen other scripts like kicking around up here. Right. <laughs> He's yeah. like, I've just got to pick one yeah. and, and, and develop it. Right. Like that's, that's all it is. Well, and you know, Tarantino, which a lot of people like to go, oh yeah, Tarantino made Reservoir Dogs, first film out the gate, first script, blah, blah, blah. Um, Tarantino, apparently, from, from what I understand, he wrote countless scripts and he didn't have a screenwriting process in the beginning, but he wrote countless scripts that were apparently 30 to 70 pages, which is the die mark on a script where you usually die and you don't know what to do because you didn't work out the ending and you didn't have a process. So you kind of wrote from the hip and you get stuck somewhere. So you kind of... These are, you know, and I've done it before too. Um, but when you have a process, which, you know, Scott learned in Timeless, you know, you, your first script, you've already worked out those points. So you don't have to have a die point, which, which I think sucks. Cause you know, there's a few scripts where I've written and I'm like, this started off really good, but I didn't know where it was going. So I wasn't planning on how to, how to have that, you know, they call it a setup and a delivery where you set up something early and deliver it later. I didn't have stuff like that. Cause I yeah. hadn't thought about it, but once you have a process, you're already thinking about where you're going to end up. So you kind of plan for that and you prepare. Yeah. And it gets all that stuff, I think, kicking around in your subconscious as well. Mm -hmm. You know, once you, you've started to do that, but I know I I had a friend of mine a few years back. I don't think he ever finished the script. Um, but he sent me like, a you know, a, a rough draft, which again is something that I don't always encourage people to do is to send like a the first few pages of like your first draft of something, yeah. but he had sent me some like 20 pages or something of the script that he was working on. And I liked it a lot. It was really, it was really good as far as like his, you know, characters and like his setup was going, but, uh, he's like, Oh, I don't really know what to do with it. And I said, well, how, how did your, like, what's your outline sort of look like? And he didn't, really do an outline on, on it. Like it was just, you know, he had started off with that point of inspiration, a story he wanted to tell, which is the jumping off point. I agree. No, like no questions about it. That's the jumping off point. Um, but then you, you really do have to, you have to nurture that through the outline and, and develop that because you you can know how you're going to start and you can know how you're going to end and maybe a little piece in the middle, but you've got, you know, roughly 90 pages that you've got to have things happen, Mm -hmm. you know, have really engaging, provocative, what have you, you know, things going on in that. And in my experience, when you don't have that, that outlining, when you haven't really figured some of this stuff out, 
then that's when, yeah, you just like, you just come slamming into these like hard walls of like, I have no idea what the hell I'm going to do. And it's so much more difficult to try and then do it from that place. Yeah. Then had you just done it from the very beginning. Takes the wind out of your sails. Yeah. Even if stops your momentum. Yeah. And I mean, even if you end up throwing stuff away from your outline, you know, when you come to it, it's like, Oh yeah, I remember like, that's been, I, it's never been an issue for me in that, in that sense where it's like, it's like, Oh, I was going to do this scene at this point. Oh, that doesn't really work anymore. Oh, I'm going to do this instead. Right. And then next, you know, it's like, so you just make a little deviation, but then that outline you, is still there. Like you can't do that change if you don't see the whole picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because then you see, yeah, exactly. Because you're like, well, this still fits with the whole thing. And in fact, usually you're like, this, this is, this is better. I mean, that's why you're ultimately choosing it over what you would put in, put in your outline. You but, know, what's a better word than structure is a uh, vision because that's really what you're building. You're building a vision for your project. Yeah. You know, you can call, you can call it structure, you can call it whatever. And people, I think people fight structure a lot because they go, well, I don't want to, I don't like structure or structure makes a cookie cutter or whatever. I don't want to be bound, man. I don't want to be confined. But that's almost like saying like, like, that's like having a, like, like not having goals in your life. If you don't know where you're headed or what you want or why you want what you want. And you're just like, I'm just going to be in the moment. That's all I'm going to do. You'll probably never accomplish anything in your life, really, because what's going to get you to to push against discomfort. You know, that's what goals do in a way you go, I'm willing to do the painful thing today because I recognize the reward tomorrow. And I get fulfillment out of the pain today, mm-hmm. knowing that by doing this will get me that reward tomorrow. But when you don't have even the idea of the reward in the end, like that's the problem with structure. Structure is basically setting up your rewards, right? And that's the beautiful thing. Like, you know, this, when you hit your inciting incident, and you know you hit it. When you hit that peak moment, and you know you hit it. When you hit that rock bottom moment, that climax moment, you hit those moments. Those are your rewards. Those are your goals. So you need to know those points because, and then the process of getting there, the way you get there, the way you do it, that's your artistic expression. You don't have to do it. You're not and, bound by yes. anything because you have a structure. No. You're freed by it. And, you know, you might have a goal for your whole life, and then, and then I'm talking life. And then all of a sudden, you know, you hit a certain age, you go, you know what? I want that goal. I want this goal. But the fact that you were after a goal the whole time got you in movement. Yeah. You didn't have to know the goal you ultimately go for if you change it. And it structures the same way. Cause I've done that too. I mean, with the burning blue script, which I talk about a lot, we're on our fourth major rewrite now. And I'm talking major cause things are changing drastically. But my initial goal would have never in a million years from the place I was in in my life ever been the way it's going to be now. But I'm more happy with the script now than ever. And I had to have the initial goal to get me moving, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes the script work in the way that it already works. So now I'm just really excited for where this new draft is going. But it had to be an evolution, which is, I think, the point. You write the structure fully knowing that, you know what, it's just here for a placeholder. I can change it at any time. You know, no one ever sees your structure anyway. So it's like you can have it and then you can abandon it. You can change it, right? That's the beauty. But to not have it, I think people get lost. They get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. You write in circles. Yeah. I'd like to take it back uh, a little bit to uh, Quentin Tarantino and make one comment. I saw an interview with him um, a while back because he's kind of the guy I look to as the guy who was successful without film school. 
you know, which I haven't really been able to go to. Um, You know, he says I watched films. Well, I watched films too, but watching them is one thing. It's it's understanding them and dissecting them is another. But I I saw this one interview with him, and he they asked about what he did because I think you guys said he wrote Reservoir Dogs, and then he got that launched right away. I don't know what year that was, but I know he wrote around that time. He wrote True Romance. Which I think oh, was yeah. his first script. I don't know if it was before. <coughs> he apparently co-wrote True Romance with someone else. I think he, that he wrote that, and then, but it was directed by somebody. It else. was directed yeah, by directed, Tony, Tony Scott. That's right, Tony Scott. Yeah, and uh, apparently co-wrote it. He bought the rights out from his co-writer, oh, and okay. then gotcha. that's why Tarantino was officially the writer. But okay. apparently, anyway, that's apparently the story that I've heard. I don't know if that's accurate or not. So people can, right. if if that isn't accurate, someone on our post or whatever just clarify fair enough yeah uh so i saw this interview and they asked him before he started screenwriting they said well how did you get from just being a fan of movies to someone who could write good dialogue or could write good scenes and what he said was he used to take his favorite movies he used to take scenes that he loved and scenes that he didn't like and he used to pick a character and he would write all the dialogue out as it came on he would pause it and then he would write his own dialogue and that's how he learned to seamlessly write his dialogue into a movie that was already structured. Wow. But he would write it differently from the stuff that was being said by said character. So he would just come up with his own stuff. And he just said, after a while, you kind of get comfortable and you, you kind of go, I, I can keep up with these guys. You know, I can kind of, I can, I can make my dialogue interesting. And of course, he, he would ask people their opinions and and uh, yeah, that's kind of how it grew for him. Yeah. Amazing. And yeah. he has such a signature style. He does. Now. He does. For well, that. Although I think he needs to start branching away because yeah, you can be a master at something, but after a while, I find it kind of, it kind of dies out. A little similar. You need to pump some life in, which is kind of what I'm saying. It's it, it was refreshing for me. I know I'm just at the beginning, so who you know who, yeah, who's yeah. saying that that you compare, um, but. Writing something I had no idea I could write. I mean, and, and I look at it now, and I'm on my second screenplay. I look back at my first, and I'm like, ugh, I could do so much better. But, <laughs> and you will. You'll and and I will, yeah. yeah. But that was, that was like, energizing. Mm-hmm. That, that puts blood back into your, into your methods. You know what I mean? It's doing something that you didn't think you could do. I want to write a horror one day. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big horror watcher, because my wife is terrified. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't really know if I can do comedy. But the banter in this, in this second screenplay that I'm doing now, the, the, mo- the thing I'm most proud of is the, this world I'm creating feels so authentic. The relationship between these characters, I've let some people read them, and I've asked for truly impartial uh, kind of critiques about it. And what I'm hearing is, when it's over, when they don't have any more to read, they go, oh man, I want to read more, which is what you should always be looking for I in a screenplay. So. yeah. But it's, it's the banter, the, almost the comedic banter, because I made my protagonist's best friend, because this is going to be a serious movie, it is going to be a drama, so it's going to have action in it, but I'm doing a heist movie that's a drama, you know, that's not just all action. But I had to have something light, so I created this best friend of his, and he's taken on a whole life of his own. And I, I just knew that I wanted to keep it light, and I wanted to show their relationship, but when I stopped... And then I went back and I read what I wrote when I just went under the lens, you know, and just let it flow. I was like blown away by how funny it was Mm -hmm. and by how endearing their rapport was, you know, kind of 
you can tell when you guys talk how tight you guys are. Mm -hmm. You have a big history. That's fascinating to watch, and I'm quite honored to be a part of it. But to see it on a page, it was like, I did that. <laughs> and, and it wakes up all these possibilities that you're like, well, maybe I can write comedy. Mm -hmm. You know, and it makes me want to write a comedy, even though I'm scared and I'm out of my mind to do it, you know? <laughs> but I don't know, it's these, it's, I look at it and I'm so impressed with, only on my second script, like how I've made this world. These are believable characters in believable situations and I'm not doing the expository dump. You know, the audience has... <laughs> I'm picking up my scenes in the middle of, of what's going on. And it's yeah. like, the audience has to kind of follow along. And if you're following it, you'll pick it up, but it's not handed to you, you know? Well, so you know what I'd love to talk about is I'd love to talk a little bit of your process because you're on your second script. And, um, I mean, Evan and I are both very experienced screenwriters. I mean, we've written countless scripts. We've been doing this for a decade, at least, each of us. And um, you wrote, you wrote, and you haven't read it yet, Evan, but he wrote basically three or four pages, sent it to me. And I was just checking a technical thing. I wasn't even reading a script for feedback. But I was like, oh, I got three or four pages. I'll read it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, three or four pages that were like really seamlessly good. And I was like, I was like, I was like really impressed. I was like, Thanks, holy shit. And, uh, and the thing is, I'll tell you what I noticed from a script doctor point of view in my humble opinion was that you started in the middle in everything. So I didn't know, but I knew I had enough information to know what was going on, but I didn't have enough to. And so it makes you just begs you to want to know more. You just want to know more because he's in the middle of everything. So this is, in my opinion, quite masterful technique. It's actually really simple, but quite masterful. But you, your process, you've been reading the best scripts around. You've been going out and you've been looking at specific writers. He's been uh, reading specific writers' screenplays, starting to understand their style, starting to understand what they do. I mean, you didn't just wake up and you were born with this skill. You are literally doing extracurricular activity to build these skills. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you got to have a passion for it first of all, because if you don't and it's work, go do something else, you know, because you're not going to get where you want to get to unless you're willing to put in the work because the work isn't really work. It's kind of awesome. It's, yeah. it's fun, <laughs> right? I, first thing I did was I took stock about what kind of writer I want to be. Um, I want to be the kind of writer who nobody touches your script. I, I'm open to suggestions, but I want to be someone that they take my work and they don't go, we should hire this guy on to polish it. I'm trying to write the best standalone script. So what I started doing was researching some of my favorite screenwriters that <laughs> it says screenplay by one guy or one girl, you know, and it's as opposed to, it, as opposed to yeah, you, you <laughs> see some and you're like, that took four writers. Like, yeah. wow, I, I, you know, that's astonishing. Right. So, writers like William Monaghan, he wrote The Departed, he wrote Kingdom of Heaven, movies like that, I really, really like him. John Logan, John Logan is a very good script doctor. He, I read um, The Last Samurai, uh, he wrote that, which blew me away. Um, and more recently is uh, Drew Goddard, he wrote The Martian, mm. he wrote World War Z, um, he has a lot of TV credits lost and, and whatnot. Yeah. But so I'm starting to read their scripts because I read once William Monaghan said, when I know I've written an excellent script is when no one wants to change it in the whole process. 
they just take the script and everybody's excited. And the reason that I personally want to be that kind of writer is because when you, when you are passionate about something, when you nail something and you know you've nailed it, everybody else wants to be on board, but they want to bring their best, right? It's not just something that they can make, something to pay the bills, something to just fill the space. No, it's, you get everybody involved. All those credits you see at the end, all these people involved want to bring their absolute best, and I think that's really what makes a great movie a great movie. But it has to start with the blueprint that you write. So for me, you know, when I was writing the sci-fi um, script, I read Alien. And in reading Alien, I noticed how point form everything is. And that's when I understood that's how you pace your movie. If you write four lines of action and four lines of action and four lines of action, that's not fun to read. Not that it can't be fun to read, but it really, you get bogged down on the page. So I just, I kind of point form it. Um, and I learned that from reading Alien. You know, I learned from reading William Monaghan's scripts that dialogue is not about what the characters are saying to each other. Dialogue is what's not being said. So trying to write dialogue that doesn't address the issue directly, anyway. And you don't realize what you're picking up, but when you read how these masters are doing it, you're like, oh, I get it. You read Heat and you go, that's how he wrote the shootout in the street. You read Rocky and you go, that's how he wrote a fight. You know, you don't have to follow that, but you see what I did and it makes sense. And then you can kind of turn it over in your head. And I guarantee you, if you stick with it and you keep putting in the work, when it's time to sit down, the flow comes and you're like, wow, it, it stayed in there and it, and it festered and I worked through it and without even realizing it. And now yeah. it's on this page and it's like, I'm really proud of what I wrote, you know? Yeah. But the thing is, if you're going to be one of these writers, sure, talent will only get you so far, but you, you, you just can't ever, ever, ever forget that you always have to start, or you always have to keep learning. Mm -hmm. Learn, learn, learn. As many times as I write screenplays, if I write my 50th screenplay, I'm still going to go through the same process. I'm still going to create seven concepts before I get in there. Right. I'm still going to, you know do everything that I learned from Timeless. I'm still gonna, I, I go through my notes and I just jot down, I go, these are some dilemmas that would fit within my plot. These are some twists that would fit within my plot. And then I'll write up my, my scene purposes and my character creations. And you know, when you're on your 50th screenplay, you might go, oh, well, you know, I can do this in my sleep. Okay, sure, but do you wanna make something great? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, the only thing I can liken it to is I, I saw a motorbike accident a couple of months ago, and this guy just took a corner, it was early in riding season, and he bailed on his bike, and I, I parked my bike, and I got up, and I helped him and his bike get up, and I, I said, are you okay? He said, yeah, you know, I've been riding for 10 years, and I just got on the bike. I didn't practice my starts and stops, I didn't practice my balance, I didn't take a, a rip around the neighborhood. I just got on and throttled. Mm. And I think that is kind of a good metaphor for writing or anything that you're doing. Just don't forget that there's always more to learn. Go back to the basics because every time you do, you just get better and better and better. And you're coming back to these basics with so much more knowledge and so much more experiences. You can do so much more with it. You look back and you go, oh, right. 
I'd forgotten completely about that kind of twist or that kind of dilemma or whatever. You know what? You'll stop yourself coming up against a wall because you're like, oh, I didn't do a character creation or a scene purpose. There's no point for the scene being here. Well, if you didn't do the work, then you're going to have to do the work later, you know? Right. And I just think, never stop learning. Well, that's, um, <clears throat> it's interesting. You're referring to some tools that we use in Timeless, which is the character, we have a, we have a couple forms. Char- we have a character creation sheet, a character purpose sheet, a scene purpose sheet, and then uh, a 26-point outline and a 40-60 outline. And the way it works is you do your 26-point you, you do your character creation for your main character and your antagonist for sure, and maybe any other major supporting characters. I did it for all of them. Yeah. And what it does is it creates a round whole character. It creates a, you know, what's their plight in life? What's their goal in life? What's their fatal flaw? What are some minor flaws they have? It gives you kind of a, but it only focuses on the parts that you need to use. Then a scene purpose is for those, you know, that character that he went that away character, you know, one liner or small character who's not, who's flat. And what that does is it creates a, why is this character even in here? Let's, you know, and, and you never want a character, I think as a writer, which I think you're getting that lesson is you never want to write a character that an actor is going to get cast as, and then they're going to cut because they're going to go in the editing room and go, you know what? We don't need this character. Because that's a writer who didn't actually have the character with purpose, right? So everything has purpose, everything has reason. And the scene purpose is you're going to have X amount of scenes. Sometimes you're going to realize, like, I have this scene I've written. What's the purpose of this scene? And if you don't have a reason for it, then maybe you don't have the scene in there at all. But if you do have a good reason for it, then you'll keep it in. And purpose also looks at, like, have more than one good reason to have it in here. Like, oh, I need to explain this little bit of information. I want to also explain That's, this information and emotionally impact them in this way. That's what I'm trying to do, right? Yeah, and, and yeah, I think that's things... Uh, and that comes down to, like, expository sort of, like, vomit. Like, if a scene is just there to deliver a piece of information, like, you know, you see it all the time. It's somewhat accepted, like, to a degree. It's not my favorite way, and I, I always try to avoid it. Like, yes, like, it's great to try and get, like, some information in there, but you know, the real, like, the real trick of it is, like, and not even a trick, but, I don't know, it's, it's really, it's digging deeper, it's digging deeper into, it's like, well, hold on, like, this is, like, this is storytelling, like, we're, we're talking about the human condition, this is not just about plot and advancing, like, we're talking about emotions, we're talking about this thing that we are and our relationships, like, at, at the deepest level that we're trying to reach here and within art and, and the art of storytelling and screenwriting. Um, but you know, there's so much stuff to, to get into. I'm going to reference this one again, which I've referenced so much on this show, <laughs> but a modern masterpiece whiplash. Um, tremendous movie, just a tremendous movie, not a wasted not a wasted scene in there. Everything served a purpose, even if it was like this very subtle sort of permeating thing. And one that I know I've talked about with you, Bran, one scene in there that I thought was just so extraordinary was this family dinner scene. Oh yeah. That yeah. goes on in there. And it was, it said so much without being like, cause you never really saw the rest of the family ever again. You know, you saw the dad again, you know, throughout the movie, but the rest of that family, you never saw them. And it, you didn't have to, but it was like, you got a glimpse of like, oh, this is what he's kind of been coming up with. And nobody really even recognizes who this, who this person is that they're, they call family, you know, that nobody recognizes his talent and his ability 
and it was just like, and what they do recognize, what they do glorify and whatever. And she's like, it, it informed so much without really like spoon feeding it, like being mm-hmm. like, Oh, look at how, like, whatever. It was all just very, very authentically, organically done. So it, like, it did give me information, but it gave me emotional information. Hmm. And it, it served two purposes. The first was to show that his family did not place any value in what he did. And that bonds the audience to him. Because you lock onto him and you're like, this guy's amazing. <laughs> he has no support. I can't stand those people. Or whatever. They attach it to themselves. My family doesn't support what I do. Or whatever it is. It brings the audience along and it attaches them to him. And the second thing that I realized it did was it was actually in and of itself a setup for a delivery later. When he's at the end and he's doing his thing and his dad looks through the door, you see, you feel how it hits his dad. His dad goes, oh my God, this is amazing. What my kid is doing is amazing. And it, it's that that an audience is looking for. They're looking for that depth because you laid it there. You know that when his dad didn't support him, because he wanted to look good to the family when they were all talking about football. Here's this superstar drummer who's just risking everything, his, his blood, his sweat, and his tears, and then to see it at the end when his dad can see him, you feel the impact. You're like, yeah. see? I told you, Dad. <laughs> and that's what you're looking for. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. And if you haven't seen Whiplash, watch it. Oh, my it. God. It's Absolutely. on Netflix. Watch like, it. Just... Just please, and I've been wanting to revisit that one again. Yeah, one of the so best, badly. one of the best films I think to date, like have ever been made. And I mean, if you if you ask the director, the screenwriter director, it was a passion project. Yeah. So always remember, write what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got to have passion. You, there's just no way that movie is even remotely as good as it is if he doesn't have passion for that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, um, so. Earlier, you were talking a bit about rhythm and uh, Alien. I think I think I recommended you read that script. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. I think about it, but um, uh, yeah, because Alien is one of the best paced, most abbreviated um, scripts, and it's so well written because it keeps right on pace. It's sharp, and you mm. don't have overwritten action. Things aren't overly detailed. You get just all you need, and then you can move on. Um, I think I found that actually with your first four pages is I found the pacing to be quite good. So you clearly applied that. that lesson. Good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, awesome. But this is what you get from doing the research. Right. I learned more from reading three scripts, three different types of scripts. Yeah. Than I could have learned in six months of just reading books, reading books and studying yeah. and whatever, because yeah. re- reading books will get you, it will, it will get you information, but it's, you're reading masters of their craft, doing what they do. And one of the things that I... There are some sentences, some action lines in Alien. It doesn't even feel finished. Like, he could have added three or four more words, and it still would have been a good sentence. And you're like, oh, you just done that sentence. Okay? <laughs> and it, it just it moves you along. And, right. and I think that's what audiences are looking for. Audiences are looking for... They don't want to be spoon-fed. They want to work for it. Yeah. You know? And that's why I like to start my scenes as often as I can in the middle. Because it's like you're playing catch-up. So you're playing catch-up right away and it it makes you hang on the dialogue. Totally. And then you get it. And it's like the patterning you talked about is the audiences will put together a sequence. They'll put together a bunch of, of 
sequences that you've made into a message that you're trying to convey. And so, I don't know. I just, I find that not getting bogged down, and that's one of the things I'm going to do when I rewrite my first one again. Yeah. Is quickly. Yeah. Quickly. Well, you know what I call that? I, you know what? That's, that's confidence as a writer, and that's trust. And the reason why that's confidence and trust is because it takes, I think, great writers, um, which, you know, I, I don't know if I can even include myself in that caliber yet, but I understand the principles they live by, which is that they give you enough information and trust that your internal process is enough to pick up on what they put down. Yeah. They don't show you what they put down, but they give you enough clues so that you as the audience member feel like you can put those clues together and go, that's what it is. And that's trust and confidence because a writer who has no trust and no confidence will literally tell you what they're doing. They'll tell you and they'll over explain it. But a writer who um, doesn't over explain, they have that trust and confidence. And you know what, they might go wrong sometimes, but I think it's better to err on the side of I'm going to have faith in that audience member. I'm going to respect that audience member. I'm going to treat them like a smart human being. And what happens, I think, for the audience member is we appreciate that. We go, I feel involved. I feel like I'm participating in this. You know, and, and, and uh, what, was, what I liked about your first three or four pages, I'll just say this, and I mean, it goes for any script, is that I liked that I wanted, I, I was piecing stuff together. And the other thing, too, is it's inconclusive. Mm-hmm. that's the beauty of it because mm-hmm. the movie is inconclusive until the end. So what ends up happening is I put it together. I think I put it together. I go, oh, okay, I know what's happening. I think I know what's happening. This is based on everything I got. This is what I think is happening, but it's still inconclusive. I don't know. So I want to read more because I need to conclude my, my, yeah, my theory it was right or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that is what gets an audience going. Right. Yeah. And if writers understand that tool, I mean, you, you open a door to a new world. It's like, that was like a, I mean, you can do that in so many little ways in a script, but I mean, that's like, there's the classic whodunit, which is like almost a literal interpretation of what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you, we are so like audiences, like as people, we are so, we've been told stories our whole lives, like from, from books to movies, like we've been we've been getting this for so long that we, we understand story. Like we get it. So audiences are sophisticated. Audiences are sophisticated story watchers or story takers, you know? Um, so it's, it is, it's so important that that is respected. And I know I appreciate when I feel I'm being respected as an audience member. And it's great when you're able to watch something where they don't just, they don't, tell you this is how you should feel right now, you know, or, or just like, just ham fist everything. Um, or, Hey, remember the time when we did this and that and this and that? Like, yeah, you're like, Oh, you know, remember that time when we were 12 and we jumped on rocks and then you fell in the water. Well, I was just thinking about that and, and how it was kind of raining out. (laughs) I know. And you're (laughs) just, (laughs) you can show that they've known each other for years in other ways, you know, yeah. Simply by their banter. Oh man. You know, what's great though, is that you're reading a lot of great scripts. I encourage you to go find some movie of the week stuff, some really terrible stuff. Go find (laughs) that just so you can experience the gap because what's amazing is I think some writers might not even know they're lacking in their ability and they don't know why they are not able to create like that high quality stuff. 
because crap stuff still gets made. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, we're talking about this high art, this high caliber art, you know, you start, like, I've read a lot of scripts, I'll tell you, but I've read a lot of stuff that's been made and I'm like, how did this bottom of the barrel expository, poor concept crap ever ever get money behind it, right? How many people had to green light this <laughs> on the way and it right. got through everyone and they made it anyway. Yeah. You know? So, um, so anyway, I, I don't want to cut that off, but, but yeah, that's, that's the funny thing, right? Is, and I think what we're really trying to do is we're trying to take these, with these conversations is how do we take this to the next level? You brought up some really amazing points. It's been quite interesting. Anyway, so, uh, so let's go on about this. So the, so the trust, the, the not spoon feeding. Yeah. And, and it's, for me, it's always so exciting when I kind of feel like I've stumbled upon this little thing that was always there in a movie, especially if you get to do like rewatch something you really like. Um, and you find these little things that it's like, you know, I wasn't told this, but I figured this out for myself. And you're like, Oh, I remember I had that experience. And and this just goes to illustrate how it can be in something that is extraordinarily commercial. Uh, one of my favorite sort of like blockbuster movies of recent memory was Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, you know, it was just a ton of fun, super imaginative. But one of the things that was so extraordinary to me on on an emotional level, and I got it on my second watch of the movie, where it was because it opens up and you watch this, this spoiler alert, um, the movie opens and you watch and, and you see this kid basically watching his mom die, right? Like die right in front of his eyes. And then the next time you see this kid, he's grown up and he's just like strutting through like this, like one of the most like horrific, dangerous looking planets you can do. But like, he just doesn't care. And I remember just going like, I'm like, Oh my God, it makes complete sense. Like I was just like, he, he's seen the most terrifying thing that he could have ever seen in his life. Mm. Nothing scares him. And it makes sense for his entire character. You know, like right. I, I've never read the comic. I don't know if that's actually part of the original comic story, but right. I remember just being like, Oh wow. Like that's great. Like it was just this subtle thing that was clearly there, but wasn't being explained to me. It wasn't expository in the way it was just showing me, you know, it's that right. whole thing show don't tell the, that adage still holds up as some of the best wisdom for a screenwriter. I yeah. think show don't tell. Yeah. Cause yeah, I, I immediately kind of do like a fuck you when I see a movie where there's just like, there's like, you're a smart guy and you always were, but when you dropped out of Stanford, your dad was, you know, yeah, like, totally. and blah, blah, blah. He's like, and we go way back when we were in the army and we served together. And then when we ran and you're just like, wow, thank that, you yeah. for that laziness. It is lazy. That's <laughs> it what is it lazy, is, yeah. you know, and, and I'm new to this. So let, I'd like to mention a comment on, I guess, commercial. You said that it can happen in, in a commercial movie. For me, I don't really think commercial plays into it. I don't think it's a big deal. I think if you make good work, it it can be commercial. It can be just as good as a as an art house film. Yeah. I think if you make something that reaches people and it's authentic, it doesn't matter if it's commercial or not. If it's mm-hmm. authentic, it will find its audience. Mm-hmm. You know. I, I think mean, you make a good point. Does it reach people? Yeah. Does it reach? You people? know, like will this reach people? Like, is is the the idea are the ideas you're trying to communicate, are they coming through? 
You know, that's, yeah. that is an important thing to, to be, I think, aware of and conscious of as you're, as you're doing something. But yeah, because it, we've talked about this before where it's like, you know, art house can go in a completely opposite direction where it's like, it's so ambiguous and vague in its message that it doesn't reach anybody, you know? And then, and then it sort of perpetuates the, you know, the starving artist filmmaker who's done this thing. They're like, nobody understands me. And like, it's all a bunch of commercial filth. And it's just like, no, it's because you made a movie that didn't clearly communicate ideas that people find of value. Right. Yeah. It's it's almost like you you tried to make it vague. Like, come on, have a message. Yeah, and like, then it becomes masturbatory at that point. It really where it's does. just like it's it, it was this was a movie you made for yourself. You're the creator. What are you trying to get across? Otherwise, why are you doing it? Yeah. You know? If you're just gonna sit there and go, Well, I want you all to guess. Well, I mean, you can if you if you write a good script, people are guessing all throughout your script anyway. Yeah. But just have a message, have a point, and I guarantee you, you'll have an audience. Yeah, you know. You know. Um, uh, so I, I did a course, um, which is a great course, Executive Success Programs, it's called. And anyway, um, one of the things that we we uh, talk about, one of the lessons you learn, um, not to ruin this for anybody, I think it's uh, it's kind of a you know a sociology term essentially. But when you um, are just defiant you just defy something, you're actually obedient to it. Because by just doing the opposite of it, you're actually obedient to it. Because all you're really doing is you do that, I do the opposite. So the defiance in a way is opposite. And when I think of independent filmmakers who do these art films, and they're like, I'm anti-establishment, I'm anti-Hollywood, I'm anti-commercial. It's like, yeah, but you're still obedient to it. All you are is the opposite end of it. And you're still, you know, I think a real true artist, someone, and I call this a true artist, someone who doesn't define themselves by commercial art or, or artistic. It, by story. Yeah, they're not defiant to either or or um, obedient to either. They are going, okay, you know, this time I'm going to lean a little in this area of the story, it might lean a little, but they're not even thinking like commercial or artistic. I think what they're doing, at least, I, you know, in my experience of it, and I, and I think this is, I, I hope this is true for myself, I try to go, yeah, well, I'm doing this. Like, I don't know if it's, that's, 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 what's that's, interesting that's what's to me. interesting to me right now. And sometimes, to you. yeah, it's authentic. And sometimes it's a little more commercial. Like, you know, for example, in the burning blues, right? I'll yep. tell you the, the number one scene that I get people for action where people go, Whoa, that was something. I don't know if you guys remember it. You both read the script. The, the van flips over. Oh yeah. And yeah, a gun yeah. shoot up. I right? remember that. Yeah. Which is, everyone's like, Whoa, so unique. Like, how'd you come up with that? I'm just like, they got, I'm just like, I just want, I just had this vision of them getting fucking, you know, they were trying to, trying to stop these guys and they fucking hit their van and the accident occurred that way. And then I let it unfold because I was like, well, you know what, Th- what do you do? You're in this situation. You can't what would drive my away. characters do? Yeah. You're knocked yeah. out. You're, you're bleeding. You're trapped in this car and then a shootout occurs and it's just unique. Like you never really, I've never seen it anywhere. And the thing is, is when I, when I wrote that, it was really from an authentic place. And then people are like, oh, it's so commercial. It's so great. The shooting, the way we can put this together. It's like, great. Because <laughs> it's realistic. It's, and it's like, authentic. whatever, right? And, you and yeah. And then you could argue on the artistic, oh, it's so different. He tried something new, but it's like, no, like it wasn't commercial or artistic. It was simply, this is what happened in the yeah. story. And I think yeah. that's what we need to do as storytellers. We need to kind of come back to that moment, you know? And I, and, uh, I've heard, uh, I've heard, um, 
you know, actors and, 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 uh, teachers and things say, you know, if we could just be in that moment, you know, when you're in that zone as an actor or your zone as a writer, it doesn't matter, director even, but if we could keep that and just maintain that indefinitely, like what we could do would be unbelievable. And I think that's what we're really after. We're after that lightning in a bottle situation. And that's what happens. I mean, but I think it comes from trust and confidence. I think it comes from a place of not defying, not being obedient, not trying to please anybody, but simply going, this is what I want to say right now. And sometimes you're going to be wrong. You know, sometimes you're not going to do the best option, but you do it. And what, and, and I think the thing is, is, you know, I, I always try to take actually a lesson that, that Evan here taught me, which was when I first wrote my first draft of the burning blues, I sent it out to a few close people. And he said, this is some really good ideas here. Why don't you take everything that seems a little bit cliche and just turn a little bit, and make it your own. That bit of information literally turned my writing career. I would say, I, I mean, I thank you so much for that bit of information. <laughs> I seriously do. I, I tell that to everybody because this is one of the most valuable pieces of information I've ever got because everything I do now, I understand that probably the first time I think of it, a lot of the time it's going to be cliche. I think a little less now, but, but I try to take that cliche and I go, what can I do with this idea and make it my own? So it's like, could be anything. It's like all is fair in love and war, kind of a cliche common saying. So, so a character says, you know, all's fair in love and war. So I'll take that bit of dialogue and I'll change it into something that's more unique to me. You know, like for example, it's like, you know, when you're under the gun, anything goes, you know, and then he says something different or she says something different and it's like the same message, but it's my own now. It's not the same. And that's what I do with everything. And I find that it's, it makes a big difference, you know? Mm-hmm. So take that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, take it's, that to the bank. It's really all, because yeah, it's about getting all that stuff that, that you, that you're putting into your work that comes out of just that really, it com- it's completely contrived because it comes out of something that you've just seen before. Yeah. Right. And that, that's all it is. And it's like, well, okay, so you've seen this before. Like, we know that that has worked, that, that does work. But now it's like, it's, then it's about really getting in touch with your, with your own voice, mm-hmm. you know, and really being like, Oh, what, what is your own voice? I mean, that's kind of a nice, simple way of, of really getting sort of in touch with that, you know, because like, it's, I, I find that like in a lot of ways, I, I feel like as an artist, I've really only started to get in touch with that over the last couple of years. You know, a lot of it, a lot of my artistic life had been to a large degree, a lot of shoulds you know, this is what I think I should be doing. This is what I think should happen here. This is what I think should, you know, occur or how I should do this, blah, 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 on and on and on. Um, with that said, I mean, there were a few things that I have done, you know, within that time period that I was like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that because that was just something I didn't. And usually it was something cause I didn't even think about it. Um, like one of the first scripts I wrote on the highway, which were, <laughs> which were working on. That's the script I want together. you to read, by the way. Okay. Um, sure. And that was, that was something that I wrote just out of a sense of, it was something I wanted to write. I had this idea that was kind of came out of an event in my life, but then I wove this whole tale around, around this. And that was something I, I honestly, I did not think about it all that much. It was just like, no, this is, this is kind of the story and I'm just going to write it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I didn't, I wasn't hit with a lot of those shoulds. And, and also thankfully enough, the sort of the genre that it fit in didn't have a lot of 
there wasn't a lot of things that I could closely relate it to in terms of what's going on in it because it's a road trip movie, but it's not a conventional road trip movie. Like it's not your road trip. (laughs) Right. No. Um, yeah, you, of the actual title. It was, I was like, Oh, it has a lot of these influences, but there was, there was so much else going on with it that I was like, so it was hard for me to actually copy something into it. And that's being authentic. That was the story you wanted to write. Yeah. It just came from within you and you just trusted it and you went with it. Yeah. And since then, like, I, and I've gone into things like, uh, I, I started working on this one script and, uh, a while back and I got partway through it and I hit this spot and I, I was just like, not really, really connected to it at all. And then I was like, well, yeah, I, I started writing this out of a sense of, Oh, this would be a, this would be a cool idea to do something like this. And that was about it. And it started off kind of cool. And then I was just like, what am I even saying here? <laughs> like, I, mean, yeah. I, I had no idea what I was even saying with this, with this yeah. piece. And it was nothing. And I was exploring some ideas of what I could be saying with it. But by that point I was just like, no, I'm moving on to the next project. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I've written some other stuff. Where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm really connected to this thing. And most of what I've done has been more so, and I've always thought like, oh, I'm more of an independent type of person in terms of the stories that I'm writing. But the newest thing that I'm working on, I'm like, whoa, this is so commercial, but I'm having a blast with this. Yeah. You know? And by like, commercial, like it's big blockbuster, bold, you know, like, yeah, like you, would, like it you would know. have big commercial appeal, like big widespread appeal to it. Yeah. But I'm just like, oh, but like there's all these things that are at play within this thing that I'm like, Oh, I'm so excited about this. It just happens to have this, this mass market appeal to it, which I think is a great place to start from. You know, it's interesting. Actually, let's go back to Scott here for a sec. Cause you did the proof course and, uh, and you, um, initially you were kind of like, I don't write sci-fi. I don't know if I can, you know, participate, but then you came with this concept, which is also another like high concept, uh, commercial, big, you know, it's kind of like the Terminator meets, uh, what would you say? Um, it's kind of like the Terminator. It has a quality about that meets kind of like almost uh what's that movie? Uh, Ex Machina? Ex Machina? Oh, okay. McKenna? And, and a little bit of a, of a buddy flick almost. Buddy? What do you mean? Well, because he, he creates this core and for, first of all, his, his dad died in a crash when he was a kid. And he's haunted by this. And he's trying to investigate what happened to his... His mom died in childbirth. His dad died in this crash, and he's been raised by his aunt. So he's, he's brilliant, and he's making these cores. And he doesn't know how they're animating the cores, but he's making these cores. And he, all he knows is that the corporation is making androids out of them. They're somehow bringing these cores, they're animating these cores, and they're making these new humanoid androids from there. And so one day he gets a visit from this girl, Gwen, who at first he doesn't, he thinks is actually someone who works for the corporation, biotech. And she comes in and she proves to him that she's actually an android and she actually has the core that he developed. And then he realizes that he's now got to fight against this other android that the corporation took 
his technology and made like an evil version of it almost. So they the military type of version. military mm-hmm. capabilities, and now they're they're like I don't want to. I guess they're kind of harvesting human beings in a certain way. So his he finds out that his dad isn't actually dead, and his dad actually made made the core that he developed the way it was supposed to be made in Gwen, and she kind of has to protect him. And through this movie, all they really have is each other. And, and she, she has all the information. She has all the information. She's like a, she's a machine, so she's carrying right. all the data on her, right? So they want to destroy her, because if she, they destroy her, all the data is deleted. Right. right. So he, and he has to kind of keep her alive, but she's like way more powerful. Yeah, she's keeping it's him really alive. It's really neat, almost, like the dynamic, because yeah, the guy's like, like a nerd, too. He's not like a powerful... Yeah. Remember we had that talk, I said, instead of making like, if you're going to do an undercover st- story or some cop drama, don't make it a cop, make it like a janitor. Mm-hmm. I remember that talk we mm-hmm. had. And you took that, and you, and you did this character, which was like kind of a computer nerd. He was like, not a superhero, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and he's, of, an, he's an underdog, which is neat. I like that. And of course, at some point, he's going to have to lose... He's going to count on her so much, he's going to have to lose her. And that's when he's going to have to find out what he's made of, you know? Which I think is kind of a big emotional crescendo. I put that dude through the ringer. Nice. <laughs> through the ringer. I can't wait to get back to it after I'm done my boxing one and I go back and I'm just going to rewrite it completely and I might even restructure it and everything. I'm so excited for the potential that's there. But, you know, I, I just kind of came up with this idea one day. And, I mean, I've copywritten it, so I guess I can mention it. But Well, by uh, the time this podcast is released, you'll already written the next draft. There you go. So it's all good. There, I was trying to go like... What can they be harvesting? What is this big conspiracy? And I use the pineal gland, mm. which is our third eye. So they're actually harvesting the enzymes from our pineal gland to actually animate these cores. And they want to build like an army almost of these, of these malicious cores. And so the dad who's been kind of kidnapped by the main guy and forced to work, and he thinks his dad is dead, his dad has sees this coming and has been funneling encrypted files to a friend of his on another planet and makes Gwen and he and he when he's making Gwen he kind of says he makes the the guy's name is Cassius Cassius is the CEO of biotech he tells Cassius this is going to be your slave she's going to be your minion she's going to be your your assassin your everything that you're going to need but he's actually making him for his son Morad right. so then he kind of waits until he leaves planet and then unleashes them and it's like yeah. there you go. Oh, sorry, go it's ahead. It's like yeah, like you're saying it's like Terminator meets Blade Runner meets yeah. a little bit of Tron, a little bit of like the, the newest of. one. Yeah. So here's the neat thing about the way you wrote the script, which you haven't read yet, but it's really neat. <clears throat> he withholds all that information. So you don't find that information out till way later in the story. That is proper backstory. That is where you like go, okay, I've done all this work, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the story, and I'm going to let it all go. Because the whole beginning of the story, you don't even know, like, really, like... Yeah. And then, boom, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, there's this whole world that's been happening before we're even into the story. So it'll be, it'll be neat, too, because it was your first draft, so you'll revise. But, um, yeah, but I think that's the thing, right? Is like, the, the audience is playing catch-up, right? And once they're playing catch-up, they're like... You know, that's what I love about these movies where, um, you know, there's just this whole... There's this whole middle 
that you're in the middle of the world. So you're walking into this and you're like catching up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like even in whiplash, take that for example, mm-hmm. like you're in the middle of it all. Like that kid is already on, there's a whole bunch of life that's already happened before that first scene even happens. Yeah. And you're like, what the hell did I just watch? And you're like trying to put it together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. Yeah. There's something that stood out for, for me for whiplash was there's one scene when I don't want to give anything away if anybody hasn't seen it, but he's walking down the street and he sees a street drummer wailing on pails. And it's just a moment he walks by and it just occurred. It felt so real to me because it was like, that street drummer has no idea that this awesome, amazing, world-class drummer just walked right by him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's playing his heart out, and it just, it, it just, it added depth for me. It just, it felt so real. It's like, that's, he didn't stop, he didn't engage him, he didn't show off, he just walked on by, you yeah. know? And it just, the contrast of the two, it was Oh, yeah, I think I remember so well at what done. point in that movie, in the movie that happened, so that's towards the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, when he's kind of... I didn't want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, well, um, okay, let's take a little commercial break. Yeah, why don't you uh, tell us about this so, uh, brewski here? So, Ooh. I would say it was actually Scott's choice, although I, I chose today. Um, this is from Big Rock Brewery, and I don't know if we've had this one or not. I don't remember. There's a half of Eisen. Okay. So, it's got a little bit of a banana hint to it. Um, it's a nice, refreshing summer beer. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of aftertaste. No. It's kind of, you drink it, and it's done. Yeah. Like what it. do you think, Scott? It's good. You like it? Yeah. yeah. So it's always good when the guests, when the guest likes it. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, they have another half of Eisen, which is a grasshopper at, uh, at Big Rock, but um, I guess it's unfiltered, so it's a, it's a, a little bit, it's a little bit different. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so this is a good one. What do you think, Ed? I really like it. Yeah, yeah, it's everything you said. Nice and, yeah, that banana in there. It's not uh, too crazy on the coriander, which some of those, some of the hefts and white ales can, I agree. can be like. A tremendous use of coriander. So, well, you know, um, for ha- I, and, I, and this is saying a lot that I enjoy this Hefeweizen because I always go for the citrus Hefeweizens. And uh, this one I actually really like. I always usually try to avoid the banana flavored ones because... Yeah. They remind me of this medicine I had when I was a kid. Oh, <laughs> I remember that medicine. Yeah, oh, it's terrible. It and, and, and so whenever I have some of the really strong banana-based Hefeweizens, I'm just like, oh, it just reminds what? me. It's not that it's a bad beer, but it just reminds me of that, and I don't like what that. What was that crap that they used to give us oh, that banana flavor? I don't remember. remember but, but they had banana flavored for a few different things. Banana was like a big thing. No, there was a specific <laughs> thing that like they they gave kids. They probably still do. Um, they used to give kids. It was banana flavored. It was and like a, one teaspoon, and yeah, and it was yeah. like a continual yeah. thing that you did for a little while. But it was like I don't know. They were giving you like penicillin or some something. Yeah, like something, something like that. Yeah. I remember that. I actually kind of like. I remember uh, <laughs> when I was really little. My mom, uh, she crunched up some some pill I had to take, and then she mixed it in either syrup or honey. But it was syrup for a while, and because you could kind of still taste it in the syrup, I like hated syrup for like like three or four months. I just like I didn't want syrup because I connected even the, you know. But I was too young or too whatever. I didn't want to swallow pills. Right then yeah. after that. I learned how to swallow pills, <laughs> and so then syrup came back, and I liked it again. But anyway, <laughs> that was note. a lovely detour. Why not? Yeah. Why Green not? beans for yeah. me, man. 
green beans? Just, I can't eat straight green beans. I could eat green beans mixed with other vegetables, but I can't just eat straight green beans. Is they there any just, reason? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get into it. And but. that there is leaving the audience hanging. <laughs> um, Stay tuned for the exciting conclusion. So, um, alright. I really like writing from the middle. Yeah. I like starting in the middle and getting out before. It's... It's, it makes the audience work and the audience wants to work. I know that they're passive when they go in and I get that they're passive, but sorry to hog the spotlight here. Oh, I just really like starting yeah. in the middle. I like a scene where they're in it and you're like, Oh, whoa, what's happening? And you put your stuff down and you're like, what, what's happening? What? Shh, shh. I'm trying to get this, you know? Yeah, that, I know. That's, that's what the thing. It really for. forces you, really pulls you in without like, um, there was, uh, someone I recently watched, which I actually... For the most part, I liked the movie, um, but this was one little thing about it where I'm like, I wish you just started started the movie right in the middle. And it was um, uh, so, uh, something tomorrow, Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. And it had this kind of this, yeah, it had this expository opening with this narration and these news clips and all of this stuff. And I was just like, just start in the middle. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I, I never thought of that. Like you could have just started right. that one and right in right in the middle. And I think that that's just, I, I think that's also a trusting the audience kind of thing. It's like, we are so familiar with story that it's just like, we don't need that. Like, we'll get it. Just like, it might take us a, a little bit, you know, and it's really obnoxious when you have one of those movie watchers there who's just like, what's happening? why is everybody shooting at each other? You know, it's just like, there are so many, there are those audience members. Um, I never watch movies with people like that, but <laughs> yeah, totally. Snub those ones out for myself. It's just like, just shut up. I don't know either, <laughs> but they're going to tell us, I know I'm going to figure this out. Like, but watch I've got to pay attention. Yeah. Just watch, just watch. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, so I was thinking, uh, cause, uh, recently I've been just looking at technology a lot. I'm looking at the virtual reality and the hologram holographic, uh, technology that's coming out. <clears throat> and, uh, I've been saying this for years. I've been, I've been saying this and I, and I, and I want this to be documented on this goddamn podcast, but is that things are going to eventually go to, to being VR and they're going to go to hologram. That's what's going to happen. We're going to be within the reality of the film. So I think what's going to be really unique is that when you start a movie in the future, I, this is my hypothesis, this is what I predict is going to happen. You're going to start a movie and you're going to be like, if it was say, uh, um, Saving Private Ryan, you're going to be on the beaches of Normandy and you're going to be like a soldier and you, you know, you're going to be like looking around and you're going to see the soldiers running by you because things are going to be all around you as you're watching the movie. You're not going to watch in a, in a square anymore or a rectangle. This is all going to change. We're actually going to be in the middle of the environment. Yeah. And so what's going to happen, which is going to be really exciting about this is that when we watch a movie, we are going to be watching a movie, um, differently every single time we watch it. Cause we're going to be looking at different details and yeah. different things that are happening. And, um, this is going to affect video games. It's going to affect the way art is done. It's going to affect the way everything is done. And, um, 
And also, uh, not just virtual reality, but they have glasses now where you can put them on and they assess the distance in your environment from where you are to the wall to wherever. And they fill in your environment with uh, visual things. So say you're on an alien planet or whatever, your, your, your environment can be recrafted, recreated with that distance in mind to create essentially an alien type of planet around you. So in you your living eat, room. In yeah. your living room. And uh, so anyway, so... What's really unique about this is that we're going to be in the middle of it. So I think that, you know, we're, our experience is going to be even more in, inversed into these stories. And I think what's cool about that, and this is my point, is that when you have a controlled frame in a movie, you get to direct where someone looks. Virtual reality, you don't get to direct where yeah. people look anymore. So I might hear a voice. Like I did this test. I actually did a virtual reality test and, and it was a movie. Someone's talking behind me and I turn my head to look around and I'm like, oh, there's a person behind me. And then if you like look over here, there's other people. And so what ends up happening is you're, you look where you hear the voice. Like it's more like theater. Yeah. No, I was cool. going to say exactly that, no, that basically that's how it will have to go. Like, it'll be a very interesting way in which directors learn to direct where your attention goes. Like, and the moments where a director will say, okay, now you're sort of free to, to look wherever you want to. Like there's not, I'm not going to try and draw your attention to anything. You never have to, but then it will be like creating something compelling enough to keep your attention on where the sort of their, their story is that they want to show, mm-hmm. or maybe there could be all sorts of different little storylines that are going on. And like, it's going to open up the medium, mm-hmm. I think to a whole different place. That's going to give a whole new level of artistic expression. That's never been explored. Before. I won't say it's better or worse than, than the medium of film now, as we know it, but it will be uh, a new expression of film, mm-hmm. um, that will have a sort of a different experience, right? Well, yeah. um, and also uh, just one other thing before you say some Scott is that they've created headphones now, which are beyond even seven points around sound. They're at the point now where they calibrate your ears and the distance between your head and all of that. So when you hear something, it is as though it is like the way your ears normally hear it. So if I hear it, more over over in another area and I turn my head my right ear will hear it more in that area than my left ear will hear and it's totally calibrated to your head so if you have that combined with virtual reality and then they add uh 4d which is like um spray uh, a water spray uh light mist spray wind uh rocking of a chair rocking of your standard platform that you're on or whatever you could be in a situation where you could be in an earthquake, your platform you're on, right? And your virtual reality thing is rocking. You're on a virtual reality eye set. You have, you know, your ears are hearing the sound of rattling uh, dishes and whatever in various places. You turn your head, you hear it more. It's going to be yeah. like you're really I in mean, it. The th- I think the big thing will be though, if like as far as making something like that commercial is what will people be able to handle? Right. Right. Because I've had, I had an experience with, uh, with some virtual reality that my friend has and I was totally misled going into this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a game. He's like, Oh yeah, you're like uh, in a wheelchair in like this hospital and you got to get out. And well, you get in, and it's like this, like 
like this horrible like ugh, just like the creepiest like mental hospital kind of thing and you're in this wheelchair you're just being pushed around there's it's not a game you don't control where you're going you're just you're just being pushed along on this thing and you're looking around and you're in a wheelchair and you're in a wheelchair and you're just being pushed around and you're looking in rooms and people are like twitching and and just in like oh it was so weird and creepy and it and it got to this one point where I was just like I just took the thing off because it was too much like wow it was so overwhelming that I couldn't I couldn't keep going like it was it, I was well like, that to me is like I, like I find a fascination with that oh it is fascinating like, I but find <laughs> like, like it's amazing that we can push ourselves to that degree where non-reality can kind of become so real that we don't even we, we don't even want to be in it right and which which just shows the medium in which we can push things and you want to talk about R rating and I mean apparently and this is crazy porn industry is doing virtual reality that's their next thing so where you're watching porn you can watch it in 3D or whatever <laughs> <laughs> or not 3D sorry you're watching it like you're there <laughs> <laughs> what are they gonna do for 4D yeah I just yeah I know God right. what just hit me yeah. <laughs> you don't want your friends watching you while you do that <laughs> no but um yeah so uh, yeah so but I think it's it's pretty neat the way, the way that it's <laughs> you don't want your mom walking in on you <laughs> if you're a teenager <laughs> or who knows <laughs> oh whatever I'm just I'm just throwing it out there but um <laughs> the fascinating thing about this possibility of this future this virtual reality is you wonder if the masters of what we see now will be able to adapt and what's exciting is the the open slot for who's going to be the next master of that right. and what will they be able to deliver you know and then once we've got an established hierarchy of this is kind of what the experience is like who's going to be able to change that mm-hmm. who's going to be able to make that this and that and different well who's going to gonna find it? a way to make it work first and foremost i think yeah. that's the biggest thing it's like who's going to like who's going to be the first person to show that virtual reality like how to use virtual reality as an effective storytelling medium. Well, here's here's some other crazy stuff. So virtual reality now, you can be in a science lab in your virtual reality and you can, uh, from what I understand, I don't, I don't know it too familiar, but you can actually be in a science lab and in virtuality do your experiments or do whatever. So you don't even have to do it in reality, which tells me that there's certain ways in which we might be able to create a virtual reality where we could create things that are unsafe normally, um, but in a virtual reality where we're safe to do it. So, like, and also, don't even get me started on video gaming, which we, you know, we eventually got to get someone on here to talk about video games and, and that whole process. But, I mean, to be in a game where you could change the decisions of the game and you could alter what the character does, I mean... And to be in that, you know, um, is, is mind blowing. So another little detail is there's a company, I think they're in uh, Midwest, I don't know, Midwest somewhere in America. They've created a studio. So it's a, um, I don't know, probably like a four or 5,000 square foot studio. And they built this exact same walls as they do in the video game. So they're just like basic walls. They're not like painted or anything, but you wear a virtual reality headset and you walk through the walls that they've really created, 
but the virtual reality gives you a different reality to the walls you're walking through. So when you bump into a wall, you really feel it. But, um, in the virtual reality, it looks like a different wall. And, and so what will happen, which really makes this game kind of wild is that there's parts of the game where say a bird flies out at you, but they have a machine at that point where they throw, like they throw something at you. So you, you would hit it, you would feel it and you'd be like, Oh my God. Right. But you think, cause you're basically at a certain point yeah. in when you're in virtual reality, if you do it long enough, how do you even, you, if you get involved enough, you forget about the reality you're really in. So you start to embrace it. So kind of wild. You know? Yeah, so, no, it is. And, and from my brief experiences with VR, it is almost, it can be almost jarring, you know, if, like if you've been kind of gone through this experience, um, you know, like I was just taken through this one, like it was like a demo of virtual reality and it was like, you're in space and you're watching like Cirque du Soleil rehearse on the stage. Like you're on the stage with them. Um, there's like some, you're sitting in some Mongolian hut. That was one of the most interesting things for me. It's like, you're just sitting and you, you're looking around in this hut and there's all these different like indigenous people like just doing, doing like cooking and like, you know, smoking a pipe or like doing this and that. And you're just like, Whoa, this is so crazy. And you've been having all these experiences and then you're just like, you're like like back in a living room. You're like, what the, look at your Ikea shelf. What? So here's, here's a fascinating thing. I think so, and I know we've gone on to the technology. We're on a technology channel tangent here, but, um, in a video game, they, they've created obviously systems where they build a world, a virtual world within this video game. And the characters can move miles within these video games. I mean, you look at uh, this new um, Tom Clancy game that's come out, you know, uh, you look at all these games and there's massive environments, right? So instead of making a movie where you have to film everything, you literally create a virtual environment and then everything is shot on blue screen or green screen within that environment. So now the, you don't film it anymore. So this whole idea of having a camera is not going to be, we might not even have cameras in the future. We might actually have, um, you know how, you know, in inception, how you build a world and then be walk into the dream movies will be made more like that where we walk into a world someone's already built and we can walk around it and experience it within reason, probably. Right. But but can you believe that? And they could integrate performance capture within that. So it's like, you could be seeing a performance happening, like of somebody like a block away from you, or you could like walk up to it and you could see the same thing unfold, like right in front of your eyes. So here's another amazing thing. Say you love a band, right? And this band does a live performance of their band. Now what they can do is they capture the music, they capture the performance, however they do it. And you are in the audience, you're sitting in the front seat and you decide to get up and walk all the way back to the back. And you're watching the, you're watching the music and the sound is accurate to where you are in the theater, in the Orpheum, whatever this place is. Right. And so you get to experience stuff in this world where you would look at it, like you could go right up to a character, like say it's Brad Pitt's in the movie or whatever. I'm just making it up. But you look right in, you get so close to him, you're an inch away. You can see the freckles on their skin and stuff because you're so close. You know, it's weird. It'd be creepy if you did it in normal life, but you could do it. You know, it's yeah. like bizarre. Like, the, the, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And how then, do you f- and how do you, again, 
How do you 4D Brad Pitt's face? <laughs> <laughs> what does Brad Pitt's face feel like? <laughs> anyway, so in your in your creation of story, we, we kind of talked about that. We talked about the future. Um, I think, uh, it, you know, with the VR thing, imagine you were thrown in the middle of a movie, but it was VR. Mm-hmm. Like, how would that be, right? Yeah, and I think... I think you'd want to see some sci-fi. Yeah. I think for sure. I think you so. Know, I mean, how many people would want to walk into a Star Wars movie? Mm-hmm. Right. Pick your saber color and choose your adventure or something, you know, like... You yeah. could You could watch, like, they made a Sith movie or they made a Jedi movie or they made a whatever movie and you could just, like, walk in and have a lightsaber and, like, wave it around. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, and, you know, and uh, and they even get, you know, you could carry a plastic in your hand, real lightsaber, like, like a uh, manufactured one. And then in the game, though, when you point your lightsaber a certain way, it flashes in front of you because yeah. it's virtual reality. They can do anything. Yeah. Well, it's such a new technology, and they're just starting to figure out what they can do with it, you know, and it's yeah. already quite impressive what they're figuring out. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see uh, what what the minds of tomorrow you know, come up with. Yeah. Right. And I think it comes back to your, your point earlier, Scott, is we you always got to be learning. Mm-hmm. You know, you always got to be, I think you always got to be learning. You always got to be adapting to this industry and, uh, you know, and, and paying attention to what's going on because I think a lot of school too is based on, you know, it's based on the current technology, right? But yeah. I think if you want to get ahead of the curb, you need to start, there's, but the principles will always stay the same. You know, story principles yeah. will always stay the same. Yeah, no matter, no matter what. what the medium story seems to have remained very much the same. Nobody wants a bland character who never changes. No. And yeah. and it still is very much predicated on, you know, beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Dilemma, crisis, decision, and action, resolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hero's journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I mean, we've had a pretty great talk here. I don't know if you guys want to wrap it up or what. I roll through what you guys want to do. What do you feel? You got anything else to say? I don't really add? necessarily have anything to uh, to add to this conversation. Took a little bit of a detour here at the end, but that's 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 good. Well, I it's think it's fine. you know it's I think fun. it was uh, it's it's an interesting thing being that you're kind of a new but yet prolific screenwriter um, mm. entering into this world of film. It's an exciting time because I think technology is changing as quickly as you are. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you're initially coming into this from a very traditional way in which is done through just a basic frame where we all sit in a theater and we watch a frame to a world where, you know, in the next 10 years, you might be writing screenplays as a professional screenwriter, but you're writing it for virtual reality films. Yeah. And, uh, and all of us, you know, who continue to write, um, screenwriting or whatever. Um, and I think, uh, it's exciting, you know, it's an it's exciting, definitely exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you find, so what we like to do here, um, is we like to leave the podcast on what's your takeaway? What's the thing from this podcast that really stood out for you? And, uh, for anyone on the other end of this that you could leave them with that you'd be like, this was, if anything we talked about today, I could leave you with this. It would be, it would be this. Uh, it would be trust yourself, trust your voice, be authentic. Story will always be story as long as it's it'll always be a story someone wants to watch as long as you're authentic and I think if you write from a place of authenticity and you're not writing for some imagined result some gain some 
I got to get this job, so I got to showcase this. No, you know what? People will come to you. The work will come to you if you're writing from a place of authenticity. Because as we said, audiences are sophisticated. And even when they don't realize that something has changed in their mind, like, for example, I was watching Martian the other day, and there's just the simple fact that he went from this big, bulky guy into this skinny, scrawny guy. In the back of your mind, you may not register that as something, but in the back of the audience's mind, you're making an assumption going, well, if he's gone through that kind of physical transformation, imagine the emotional transformation he's had. So all he has to do is is transform his shape, and then when it comes to an emotional moment, he cries. You're adding so much that they didn't even have to do. You did it on your own, and that's just smart storytelling. So I think you always got to be authentic and speak your truth. Mm. That's what people want to see, always. That's what I took away. Cool. How about you, Evan? You got some? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, very much the same thing about, about having a, being truthful and having your voice and your work. I mean, that, that was pretty much the big standout for me, too. And, um, you know, and, and to really follow you know, what, what excites you, you know, like, don't pigeonhole yourself into saying, oh, well, this is the kind of stuff that I, that I do, right? Do what excites you. And you have no idea what that might be. You know, like stay open to that, yeah. you know, and that's like, just, just ride that wave, you know, ride that wave your whole life. <laughs> I'm just being like, oh, wow, this is really exciting to me. Oh, now this one's really exciting to me. Like, just, just ride that whole thing. And, um, yeah, for some reason this just entered, entered my head, but, uh, my fiance said to me the other day, it's something, she's a coach. And so she, she tells this to her clients, but for whatever reason, it's like the first time I was hearing it. But she said, you don't have to say, you don't necessarily have to say anything new, but there's somebody who can only hear it through your voice. I was like, nice. That's really interesting. You know, it's like, there's a, and that comes down to your own truthful expression of something, how you understand something, you know, that, that there is just an inherent uniqueness to it behind your understanding of, of the message that you're, that you're sending that will connect to somebody that nobody else will be able to connect with as well. You know, so yeah, I think that comes down to like the trust as well. Like you were saying, trust your voice, trust the voice, you know, just let it go. Others. Yeah. Someone will only hear it through you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think the you guys raised some good points. I think the thing I'm going to take away is ultimately this, this talk has pointed me more to realizing even further that the audience really is the authority. And, uh, you know, even on this podcast, the people who are listening are the authority. They get to decide to turn it off. They get to decide to listen to it. They get to decide to experience it in whatever medium they do, whether it's in their living room, their car, or, you know, before they go to bed or whatever. Um, and virtual reality is just going to take that even further. And, uh, you know, movies are already in that realm, you know, and I think what we need to do is, uh, we need to kind of really consider their, um, experience and give them the, give them the kind of opportunity where they want to stick around and they want to listen to this and experience it or watch this or whatever. And I think that the, as technology improves, it's going to, they're going to become more of an authority. 
you know, even more so. And so, um, I think as artists, the thing that I would take away is say, you know, don't think of yourself as some, don't, don't be a prima donna. Don't be like, I'm so special. I need to be great. It's not about you. It's about the audience. And whether you're, you know, just starting out and writing a screenplay or you've been doing it for 10 or 15 years, it doesn't really matter. What's going to matter at the end of the day, whether a script gets made is the audience's experience because they're the authority. And, uh, you know, and uh, it just points, it just humbles me in a way, you know, to be, have written for as long as I have. But to, to remember that we're all, at the end of the day, we're all starting from the same place in many ways. And um, I think if we come from, as artists, whatever medium we're in, from the principle that the audience is the authority and it's about giving them the experience that they're looking for or giving them experience they don't even know they're looking for, but you as a, an authority for them, as a helper, as a guide, is going to give them something they don't even know they want yet. Mm-hmm. I think that's what our job is. So in, in, in a way, I mean, I know we didn't talk about that directly, but from our conversation, that's kind of what I've deducted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You I know, like because that. when I read your, the first page of your script, it's like, I didn't know I wanted it, but I did. And I think that's what you gave me when I read it. And I think like, yeah, that's what we're trying to do, you know, because it doesn't really matter if it's your second script or if it's your 400th script. It doesn't matter. You know, what happens is I have an experience and I don't care. And when I'm reading it, I literally don't care if it's your first or your, or your 50th. I just care about where I'm in the moment right now reading a script. That's all that matters to me at that time. Yeah. And am I connecting to it? Yeah. And the other thing I care about is not you. It's about my own life, about whether I should go take care of the laundry or wash the dishes or whatever, you know, this is not you. So I think as artists, I think we need to remember that, that we need to get ourselves out of the equation as much as possible and really understand that if anything, technology is pushing us to a realm where it really is about the audience. It really is about their experience. And it's certainly, that's the way it's going. Yeah. And give them credit. You know, so many people go, well, this audience, how do I make them see what I want them to see? Give them credit. They'll figure it out. Yeah. And they also take what they're going to take from it. Virtual reality, people aren't going to be able to be control freaks anymore Mm -hmm. because now, you know, I, 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 I've been at plays and you know, it's funny, like when you're at a really great play theater and you're, you're there, I find myself so many times watching the person who's not talking. And if you're at a play where it's really amateur actors, usually the person, like not usually, but sometimes occasionally this happens where you're watching the actor who's talking is really on. You're like, I'm speaking, I'm really on. And the other person is like, you're like, you're disconnected all of a sudden. It's like, I don't really care what that person's saying. What I care about is your response to what they're saying. And in virtual reality, movies are going to be more watched that way. Video games are going to be experienced more that way. And that's the thing is that you're not going to be able to be a control freak anymore. You don't get to control where you point the camera anymore or where you edit it to. Now people are editing on their own. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to be, you're going to have to release. Oh my God, watch bit. out. Editors are going to be freaked out. <laughs> yeah, right. That was an angle I didn't think about. <laughs> yeah, editors might be freaked out that way. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, well, cool. Um, that's it. All right. All right. Thanks for having me. You bet. 
That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks.